Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Eamon Keane on the topic God, Marriage and the Culture of Life. This November 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Eamon Keane is the Head of Social Science at Redfield College. Well, thank you very, very much, Arna, and it's great to be back here again. And I hope you enjoyed this talk, and I hope God blesses it, and that we come away from it loving God more, and more aware of our own dignity as his sons and daughters, his children. This talk is a kind of a, a shortened version of a talk I gave at a, at a Family Life International Conference two weeks ago. George Regal. I'm sure some of you have heard of George Regal. He wrote the book called Witness to Hope. He is it's the authorised biography of Pope John Paul II. Great book. And he's a great Catholic scholar, a great apologist for the Catholic faith. And he made a statement recently about the outcome of the US election that brought Barack Obama into the White House. And he said, this election, he says, wasn't about black and white, rich and poor, north and south, or any other political labels, or conventional political labels that you would like to attach to it. He said, this election, he says, was about the culture of life and the culture of death. That was the most important and basic issue. And we're now celebrating the 40th anniversary of Humana Vitae, which was a, an encyclical Pope Paul VI issued. An encyclical meaning a teaching document. And when we use the Latin term Humana Vitae, it's like so many Latin terms we hear as Catholics, often their meaning can just float over our head. And often it's better to get a kind of an idea of what above what the encyclical is above, or the Vatican document, if we look at its English translation, because that's what we can best understand it in. And in its English translation, it's of, of human life. So Pope Paul VI, in writing Humanae Vitae, was writing an encyclical about human life. A huge question. Human life, the question of human life, human existence, its origin, its meaning, its destiny, etc., all of these things covers the whole of human existence. And so does the encyclical. And very, very often it is narrowed down to just what it had to say about marital love and sexuality and so on. And of course that is very, very important. And that is the focus around which he built his reflection on human life. But nevertheless, the encyclical goes much goes out beyond that to the question of what is a human being, what is their vocation, what is their culture of human life. And the essential thing in it, as we see, is, is the God question. And the God question is the fundamental question facing human existence. But unless we resolve the question about God's existence and God's relationship to us, and where we fit into God's plan for his creation, 
we haven't really resolved anything at all. We live in the we, we remain in the dark. And if we go on, the first thing I would say is the dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God. Taken from Second Vatican Council. We are called to communion with God. Underlying the culture of death, which is so prominent in our society, I believe, I don't believe I know it, is a failure to give meaning to suffering. And that failure to give meaning to suffering is a particularly pagan trait. It's a trait you'll find in all the ancient pagan civilizations. You'll find them in all the materialisms. An inability to give meaning to suffering. And of course, at Easter time, one of the dominant images that we're presented with of Jesus from the prophet Isaiah is the image of the suffering servant. And I hope we bring in that theme out as well in this talk. So, one of the things undermining the culture, underpinning, generating this culture of death, the call for abortion, the call for euthanasia, the call for contraception, the consumerism, the increasing drug dependence, alcohol dependence, and so on, underpinning a whole lot of demand for these things is an inability to, de- to accept and deal with suffering. You find it in contraception. People are afraid of whatever burden might come, economic or otherwise, with having another child. So many people, the justification for an abortion is the effect it may have on the woman's health or it may have economic implications or whatever it is. The call for euthanasia, exit. Don't, people should not have to undergo any kind of suffering. They should be eased out gently out of life for the human existence. Very often the demand for drugs among teenagers is a way of trying to get away from the various types of psychological pain and so on that they can be experiencing. The same with alcohol. Go out and get drunk, get blood off, get away from your troubles and so on. Now, the dignity of man rests above all on the fact that it's called communion with God. We are called to live in an intimate, deep relationship with God as Father to Son. God has called us into his own life. He has offered us a share of it. And he has created us in such a way that we are capable of receiving that invitation and that revelation that he gives us about ourselves. And of course, God created man not just as a solitary being. He was called to live in communion with others, male and female he created them. Man was created in the context of a community, of a communion of life, of a communion of being. And that reflects the life of the Holy Trinity. When we say we're made in the image of God, we're made in the life of the Holy Trinity, and the Holy Trinity, the communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice, this image of the Holy Trinity I put up here, it is the risen Jesus, the ascended Jesus. He has introduced our humanity into the Holy Trinity. That is the foundation and the basis of our dignity. We are called to participate as members of Christ in the light of the Holy Trinity. Now that takes us an awful lot from what you'll find in the Sydney, very far away from generally what you'll find in the Sydney Morning Herald around the news at night. 
Um, anyhow, here's a person who died a few months ago. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was one of the great heroes, champions of conscience of the 20th century. He was a great literary figure. He was a mathematician by profession initially. A, a historian as well. He was a gunner commander fighting against the Germans on the, on the um, we call it the Eastern Front, the Adolf call it the Western Front, during, during the Second World War. He was always very, very skeptical of communism and Marxism in particular because he had been the recipient, the beer he had received, the great Russian Christian tradition. And he, he, um, sometime after the Second World War, he wrote a letter to a friend. And in the friend, he made a rather kind of a critical comment. <coughs> about the fellow with the big moustache. And of course, anybody knows anything about Russia knows that the fellow with the big moustache was Stalin himself. So for making his kind of off-the-cuff comments, he found himself condemned, Solzhenitsyn, to internal exile in Siberia. And the brutality that went on in the camps where the people there were treated as raw material. They were treated as a purely and simply as a resource, an economic resource. And they were beaten into the ground and they were denied all rights and so on, and the barbarism that went on in the camps. And to some we are up, just incredible, it's one of the great achievements, not just of courage, but just of sheer determination and fortitude. He managed to accumulate a whole lot of data while he was in the camps. And eventually he was published in the West, the most significant of which was a book called The Gulag Archipelago. And in it he documents the brutality. And in documenting the brutality, he's basically documenting and, co and commenting on the brutality of communism of atheistic Marxism, or of atheism in general. It's an assault, it's an attack, it's a critique of the atheistic mindset. And what he's showing in that work is that this atheism leads inevitably to the degradation of the human person. And of course he had a whole great history of Russian literature behind him. One of its greatest writers, Dostoevsky, in his most famous book, probably called The Brothers Karasimazov. He has one of the characters saying it to the other, Without God, all things are permissible. Mm. In other words, there's no moral law, really. No objective moral law. Because a law needs a lawgiver. And who's going to be the lawgiver, the ultimate lawgiver? Is it man? Well, if man is the ultimate lawgiver, then how can we say anything is really objective? Because the decision as to what is right and proper and legal in a particular context will always become a function of the exercise of power. So, is there anything that can save us then from that absurdity where our basic human right can only be seen ultimately as something that's derived from those who are in power and their interpretation of the law? That is why Pope John XXIII in one of his great encyclicals of social justice now, you're probably wondering what this has got to do with humanity. It's got an awful lot to do with it. Right? 
Um, in his great encyclical on social justice, and Pope called was part of a peace on earth, right? In one, I think it was in that one, or it was in another one called Matter of Magistra, which means mother and teacher. Was in one of them in Sicknickles, anyhow, he said, There is no law without the lawgiver. The natural law too collapses without recognition of the lawgiver. Right, we know we can read it, but we have to be able to read it correctly. And ultimately, must recognize that that law which is written into our being has been placed there by the designer, by the creator, by the lawgiver. So we must look to a transcendent source of that law which is written in our being. Now, Salvador Nixon, when he was in the camps, he documented this and he was able to have his work smuggled out into the West. He wrote another great book called Cancer War. And in it, he dealt with his own experience suffering from cancer in the Soviet medical system. And it was so chaotic. It was so depersonalized. Everybody was hiding just to protect this tradition, that figure, and create the right impression with this person, and look around this corner, and so on. There was no responsibility, no sense of interpersonal responsibility as such. Again, through that, through his expose, through the artistic way, in which he wrote this book and critiqued implicitly the, Soviet, uh, the, the, the medical system that he had to struggle through to survive, that too was a condemnation of the whole Soviet system. Eventually he was granted the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, I think, but he wasn't released to receive it. And he, um, but in his book, he points out that when they were finally stripped of everything, all the material possessions, and after every attempt was made to deprive them of any sense of pride in their own dignity and being, in other words, that everything had been done to make them absolutely obedient, uncritical slaves of the system, and then he said it was in that situation when they held on to their own sense of dignity and their own faith, he said, a strange things happened. We were free. An incredible thing. He said we were freer. We became totally free in the gulag. Because we were no longer afraid. And once the fear had been abolished, of course, it's taken into account here the life of faith. Even some people who weren't Christians in the camp still held to their sense of their own dignity and they became unafraid of the authorities. And from once they became unafraid, they were free. You'll find one of the most frequent words that Jesus used in the Gospel are, do not be afraid. Now, anyhow, he continued his critique and eventually they couldn't kill him, of course. Because, you know, if they were to kill him by this stage, he had become well-known to the village as well. So they just kicked him out. Kicked him out of the Soviet Union. Now, here's one of his statements. This was when he won a special prize for religious in 1983. The failings of human consciousness, deprived of its divine dimension, have been a determining factor in all the major crimes of the century. I like to talk about Christianity and religion, you know, 
been the major cause of war. And, and, and there's no doubt about it. Religion misunderstood. Religious fundamentalism and so on can become a cause of great strife and wars in the past, and it has been. Nevertheless, in the 20th century, the main cause of all the great human disasters that have taken place in the century at large have been due to atheism. Pope John Paul II said, By living as if God does not exist, man not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. If we lose sight of the mystery of God, we cannot know the truth about ourselves. We lose sight of our own dignity, the meaning of our own existence, and we end up in a situation that's eat, drink, and be merry, for the morrow we die. Pope Benedict XVI has written a magnificent book called Jesus of Nazareth. And the purpose of the book is to address, to respond, if you like, to enter into uh, a debate about the interpretation of Scripture. And he's addressing in particular a form of scriptural, uh, scriptural analysis which have proliferated over the last 200 years, which basically empties the Scriptures of their supernatural content. Um, and out of that, if you like, de interpretation of Scripture, you get ideas like, you know, Jesus didn't know who he was, and he wasn't fully aware of his divinity, and he wasn't aware of his, um, of his mission from the Father, and he wasn't aware of the scientific meaning of his death, and so on. That's the type of stuff he was responding to. But in this book, in one of the early parts, when he says, God is the issue. Is he real? Reality itself. Or isn't it? Is he good? Or do we have to invent a good ourselves? The God question is the fundamental question. And it sets us down right at the crossroads of human existence. The God question. And it's taken on particular urgency in our time. We have Richard Dawkins, for example, The God's Illusion, a book that got a, a lot of coverage, a lot of media coverage in the last year or two and so on. And as opposed to that notion that belief in God, God is an illusion, change the word illusion to the opia, the opiate of the people, and basically it's just the recycling of the ancient, pagan, materialist, atheistic idea that God doesn't exist. Right? And as against that then, there is a Christian response, or the response to Judaism, or anyone who believes in a creator God, and a one God, finding God through faith and reason. And it was very, very interesting how Pope Benedict was very, very concerned to open up this question about the relationship between faith and reason, particularly in the dialogue with Islam, in the discussions with Islam at the University of Regensburg two years ago. And of course, the, the Western media took a particular passage out of context and tried to create all kind of havoc with it. But finding God through faith and reason. Reason can lead us to recognition of the existence of God, the recognition of some of the attributes of God that he's written into his creation, and faith then, when we open and embrace the revelation, first of all to the Jews, and then secondly to the fullness of that revelation in Jesus, that lifts our reason to another level altogether. As Pope John Paul II said, um, pointed out in his last encyclical, it was called Faith and Reason. 
Now, one of the theologians who had a very, very significant influence in the Second Vatican Council was a Jesuit theologian who was made a cardinal before his death called Henri de Lubac. And he lived through the resistance to the Nazis in France. So again, he saw the brutality and violence of the Nazis. And of course, Nazism was a thoroughgoing materialism and atheism. But in this book, and it's a not quoted book, and it, ha it has had a big impact on the Second Vatican Council, especially on a document called God in the Sphere, the, the, Constitution, the, what is it? the Constitution of the Church in the Modern World. His, his writings had a big influence on that document. He had a big influence on Pope John Paul II. And here's a very powerful statement. He says, It is not true, as it's sometimes said, that man cannot organize the world without God. That's very important. God has given us that freedom. We can go about and try to organize the world without Him. What is true is that without God, He can only organize it against man. But when we do, we'll end up with the gas chambers, and the abortion clinics, and the great gaps between rich and poor, and the desolation of the, of the natural environment. Exclusive humanism, that is a humanism without God, is an inhuman humanism. Leave God out of the equation, and you can talk about all the nice humanistic ideals you want in the world, but in the end you'll be building a tower of Babel. And eventually, it is human beings who will be crushed beneath the rubble of that city of man, as St. Augustine would call it. Right? Now, here's one of the, one of the best known champions, if you like, of that exclusive humanism, that atheistic humanism, and that is Peter Singer, our own Australian Peter Singer. Now, yes. and Peter Singer is a moral philosopher, worked for many years at Monash University, then he took up a, a position as professor at is it Princeton University, it is? Princeton University, a very, very pre prestigious position. Being a professor of moral philosophy there, he'd probably be directing the, the PhD studies of some of the brightest people in the country, who will become very influential public administrators later on. But he, in one of his books, published around 2000, called Writings on an Ethical Life, he makes a statement. I do not believe in the existence of God, so I also reject the idea that each human being is a creature of God. It's as simple as that. And here then in the same book, we have this quotation which deals with what you're talking about. We should reject the doctrine that places, ignore them, that places the lives of members of our species above the lives of members of other species. Some members of other species are persons. Some members of our own species are not. No objective assessment can support the view that it is always worse to kill members of our species who are not persons than members of other species who are. So, I'm going to put the question to you. Hands up those who say Peter Singer is a pretty intelligent person. Hands up those who would say he's not. 
Okay. <laughs> I see that Peter Singer is a very, very intelligent person. Very, very intelligent. The devil, Lucifer, the enlightened one, he was very, very bright. He was the brightest of them all. But intelligence on its own, without recognition of its creator, becomes a trap that entraps human beings in their pride. Now, Peter Singer is very, very smart. And when you... He has built a system. And that system builds like on blocks of ideas. And at the bottom of the system you have what you call his starting assumptions. Or his presuppositions. Cardinal um, Newman pointed out that the main cause of differences in belief between people is differences in fundamental assumptions. Because your fundamental assumptions will develop how your whole idea or theory moves, the direction in which it moves. It's like if you're engaged in scientific research. You start off with some assumptions about reality. You start off with some assumptions about matter and about motion and about speed and so Whatever you're dealing with, let's say in physics, about matter and speed and motion and so on. And these underlying assumptions will develop the way in which your whole theory develops. Change the assumption and the theory will develop differently. And St. Thomas Aquinas pointed it out in his work. He says the final outcome of any discipline is ultimately determined by starting its starting points. Right? Now, so within his own system, he's very logical. But from but where you got to where the only the place you can challenge, you can challenge on the at the level of outcomes. He arrives at this conclusion here. But what you can argue against that, of course, is that it's totally impractical. If we start treating each other like that, we're all going crazy. We'll all end up in the, in the gulag or in the gas chamber or whatever. But this starting assumption here is what's fundamental. If he wants to change that assumption and recognize that there does exist a God who created, in whose image we are created, then that would all have to change. And the Second Vatican Council, in one of its, again, in one of its documents, again, I was, alright, called God in it says, without the creator, the creature vanishes. Vanishes means we lose sight of the dignity and the nobility and the vocation of the person. Now, in his concluding remarks to the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI said, the religion of God who became man. Jesus, the God who became man. The religion of Jesus, if you like, the religion of the God who became man has met the religion, for such it is, of man who makes himself God. There's nothing new about that. It's the ancient temptation, the devil. Did God say that to you? You know, the subtle suggestion to go against God's command. God knows that on the day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. 
So there's nothing ancient, there's nothing new about this. This is the ancient temptation, the ancient clash. Alright? Now, here's a great statement from the Second Vatican Council. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate world, only in the mystery of Christ, does the mystery of man take on life. By the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, Christ fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Here's Thomas, putting fingers into the side of Christ. He's led to say, my Lord and my God. In doing so, he discovers the full truth about the humanity of Jesus' humanity. He discovers the full truth about Jesus, the person of Jesus, who is his Lord and his God. And in so doing, he discovers the truth about himself. And of course, I am the Alpha and the Omega, one of the last passages of the New Testament. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the one, Jesus says, who sums up everything and synthesizes all truth and all reality and all love in myself. Because I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Now, here I put up a collage of pictures. And these pictures are supposed to be expressive of the beauty and the goodness and the possibility of life. And here we have a beautiful little baby. There's a little baby there, I don't know, maybe 20 weeks or something, who knows, but a beautiful baby in utero. Here's some bloke working away at his job, a student, he's trying to figure out some problem and so on. Same with a girl, I don't know what she's doing there, counting up money or something, looks like an accountant maybe or something like that. Here's a young girl taking care, I would say, in a very, very affectionate way of an elderly person. So as we go from the very young in utero to the various stages of life, all of that there looks very, very human, and it all revolves around the main picture in the centre, which is the picture of a married couple. So this whole culture of life is very, very dependent on what we understand about and think about marriage. If you like, marriage is the now around which this whole culture reality of life revolves. God is the author of marriage. So there is a fundamental assumption. That's the first thing. You ask me what I understand about marriage. I go back to my starting point. Remember I said about the starting point? The critical. Because the starting point will determine everything else. So what's my starting point about marriage? It's that God is the author of marriage. And he intended it as a union between a man and a woman. Not between two men. Or plastic men. Or plastic whatever. Right? Or two women. No, don't put all the blame on the men. Right? God is the author of marriage. And when Pope Paul VI issued Humanity Vita, it was 1968. G, it was a good year. I was in second year high, second last year of high school. I drove half my teachers crazy. They couldn't keep me still in the seat. I was, but I, was, I remember the year. All the songs were coming in. We were three, three or four years into the Beatles, right? Yeah. And you know, we're going around with big, we used to call them pointed toe shoes, right? My father used to think they were ridiculous. He used to call them winkle pickers, right? <laughs> and you had you had the fancy haircuts, you know, and the flared trousers, you know, you you, you went out dancing on the dance floor. You thought you were really cool and groovy and so on. But you had all the all the music coming in, and then also, you know, here's the song, I think it was from around that time, and it was very, very popular. I loved it. 
If you're going to San Francisco, Scott McKenzie. Yeah, <laughs> be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. And I went on about a big loving, right? And of course, this was the Woodstock era. And you had, don't worry, be hippie and get high on the pot or whatever it was. Peace, love, depends, utopia. The whole of mankind were going to march into this new world of peace. And there'd be sexual liberation within it. We'd be able to share all our inhibitions. And of course, what was stopping all that? Law, regulation, authority. The old morality inheritance from the past that was oppressive. What did it give us? It gave us the Second World War. We are the children of the people who fought in the Second World War and whoever who created that situation. Time to create a new world. <coughs> so here you have the Paris rights. And this was the image that was created of all forms of authority, both religious and secular. And I remember in 1968, we weren't, I was, 1968, I was 17, we weren't at all prepared for it. I went to a very good Catholic school and I was lucky I had very, very good Patrician brothers teaching me and lay people. They taught me my faith well. But we were not prepared for this thing. Right? And it was coming in and it was what's called a popular culture and it was, there was no opposition to it and so on. And you know, the kind of image, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the drug culture and so on, even though it ne at that time it didn't become, the drug culture didn't take off in any significant way in Ireland. But nevertheless, there was a kind of a a mental kind of thinking, oh, this is all right. This is a new way, etc. Now, Pope Paul VI issued a signal <coughs> saying that, number one, God is the president. Number two, God is the author of marriage. Number three, there, ex there exists a such a thing called an objective moral order. Four, it has implications for the way people understand sexuality and the purpose of it. And number five, if they go against that moral law, they'll injure themselves and they'll greatly injure society. In that type of climate, the kind of change in the intellectual mindset, which had been building up for two or three hundred years before that, exploded, we'll say, in the 1960s, and it was into that environment that Pope Paul VI issued his technical humanity. And I put up here a nice collage, starting here with our Lord himself, the Good Shepherd. Same Peter. And then, all the popes, all the popes um, in my lifetime, John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, and Pope Benedict. And this is a passage here from St. Matthew's Gospel, I will give you the keys, etc., and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. So, that truth, which Jesus came to bring, came into the world to bear witness to, is passed on. And it's passed on, most essentially, as a word that is transmitted sacramentally. Now that's an interesting point, isn't it? It's passed on as a word that's transmitted sacramentally. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus came to communicate the, the truth to us about the Holy Trinity and about ourselves. And Jesus communicated that word to us in two ways, with his words and with his actions. And his words and his actions, Second Vatican Council teaches this, the words and actions of Jesus come penetrate with each other. 
The words shed light on the actions, and the actions shed light on the words. I'll take one simple example from the Gospel of John. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Only God can raise anyone from the dead. Right? Mm-hmm. Jesus also says in St. John's Gospel, Before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. The Father and I are one. And then it says, after he says, before the fo- after he says, the Father and I am one, and after he says, um, after he says, before Abraham was, I am, and the Father and I am one, it says, they took up stones to kill him. Because he claimed to be God. That was one of the blasphemies they accused him of. The point about it is, though, the words, before Abraham was, I am, sheds light, light on his action of raising Lazarus from the dead. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead bears witness to the truth of his affirmation of his divinity. <laughs> now, some of these uh, biblical scholars who have departed from the tradition of the church with respect to the interpretation of Scripture would argue that the New Testament doesn't explicitly anywhere testify to the divinity of Jesus, or Jesus claimed to be divine, of course. That has been um, that has been rejected by the church. No. When I said it's linked to word and sacrament, it's the same in the church. Jesus gave the apostles the authority to teach. Go teach all nations to obey all I've commanded you. He gives them the authority to teach his gospel, to teach the truth that he is. So much so, that when they speak, it will be him speaking through them. He who hears you hears me. At the same time then, he also gives them the authority to make them substantially present in the Eucharist. The ones he has given the authority teach his word, apparently, are also the ones that he's given the authority to make him substantially present in the Eucharist. He links together word and sacrament. So the word of Christ, and what does the magisterium do? It doesn't essentially teach new doctrines. It will, it will authenticate development of doctrine. But basically it teaches the same gospel as Jesus gave to the apostles. And, just as they have the power to make them present in the Eucharist, to forgive sins in the name of God, they have also got the power to communicate his word across time. Now, humanity, it revolved around, it said, not, it said, number one, God is the author of marriage. Second point it made was, number two, that marriage is created by God to be a union of love and life. The couple are called by God to give themselves as an irrevocable gift to each other, to struggle and strive day after day to love each other as deeply and as honestly and as selflessly as they can. And at the same time, when God so chooses, he will bring out of their love, he will, he, will, he will bring through their love new human beings into existence. 
is bring other sons and daughters destined to live with him forever into existence. Marriage is a union of love and life. Now, and of course, here we go again. Here's the Holy Trinity. <coughs> Here's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we said, is come forward, come forth, proceed from the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the love between the Father and the Son. How is love and life embedded in the sexual love, the sexual dynamism of a married couple when they engage in the marital act? Its potential to create life is part of the being of the couple. It's not like a coat to put on or a hat to put on that you can take off and put it away for saying you go to bed. It's part of their very nature. It's part of the gifts God has inscribed in their sexual communion in their two and one flesh. And I read one commentary one time which said that the only way that you can possibly describe that, the mysterious, yet the very real way in which this unit of capacity, meaning the, the vocation to love, and the procreative capacity, the life dimension is inscribed in the very nature of the sexual communion between a husband and wife, he said, is the comparison to the Holy Trinity, in which the union between the Father and the Son, that perfect communion, is also a generative of the Holy Spirit. And he said, to try and enter into that sacred zone, of the marital union expressed through the bodily union of the couple either by way of a chemical intrusion or a mechanical intrusion is to do terrible, terrible violence to the meaning of the act in which the couple are engaged. Now, the whole sixth revolves his encyclical humanity then around that principle. Here are some of the key teachings. Marriage must be faithful and exclusive unto death. Jesus has given himself. His body has been given. His blood has been poured out. He's brought his church into existence, his bride. He's indissolubly united with his bride, the church. God is indissolubly united with each one of us. He never takes back his gift. We live, we are called to eternity. He won't take back his gift. If we choose hell, that's our own decision. He won't take back his gift of life. The next thing is, marriage is an inseparable connection moved by God and able to be broken by man in his own initiative between the two meanings of the marital act. So, if you use, if you contracept the marital act, if you use sterilization, if you use abortion, you're contradicting the meaning of that act. You're contradicting the meaning God inscribed in that, and in so doing, you're violating the dignity of each other. And then, we'll go on in here, he went on there to point out that, um, right, there are the main teachings under certain circumstances, for the serious reason the couple can use um, natural family planning if they believe it will be the responsible for the thing for them to do in a particular situation. Now, 
of John Paul II. It is an illusion to think that we can build a true culture of human life if we do not accept and experience sexuality and love and the whole of life according to the true meaning and their close interconnection. If we separate this unit of appropriative meaning of marital love, marital sexuality, there's going to be dire consequences. And he said that in the Gospel of Life. He went on and evolved theology of the body to try and explain in greater depth and from different perspectives how reasonable, how biblically well-funded this teaching was. I'll just jump through some of this, right? Now, the body, of course, the bodily communion of the couple. In Catholic faith, in Christian faith in general, the body is awfully important. God took on a human body. He took it on first at the point of conception, right? But here it is at the birth, right? The nativity. The body is human, very important. Jesus, he who sees me, sees the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We see the love of the Father in the crucified body of the Son. The body, as Pope John Paul II said, expresses the person. When Jesus gives himself to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity, he gives himself to his body. The whole Jesus is expressed in the gift through his body. So the ancient heresy which claims, called Manichaeanism, that only the spiritual realm was good and all the material realm and universe was evil and bad. Very interesting, in his encyclical the life of the Holy Spirit in the church of the world, Pope John Paul II said that one of the contemporary forms of Manichaeanism is the attack on human life at its source. And that is origin. It's part of the ancient Manichaeanism. The culture of dead protagonists who promote abortion and contraception and sterilization and same-sex marriage and so on, basically they're Manichaeans. They do not recognize the goodness and the potential for love and communion and life that God has embedded in sexuality. And the ancient Manichaeans revolved between two extremes. One was a terrible strict asceticism to crucify their bodies. And the other was a very extreme promiscuity. Where you could do anything with the body. Because it didn't matter. Because matter has no significance. And you'll find some people who say today, oh I can engage in any kind of immorality, sexual immorality, that doesn't compromise me or express my true spiritual self. It doesn't express my fundamental option. Which is basically an apology for Manichaeanism. Now, so the body is very important. And the couple's marriage is consummated when they give themselves to each other through the gift of the body. To marital intercourse. There's a perfect synthesis and connection in Catholic faith. Why? Because it's God's revelation of the truth about ourselves. Jesus came to reveal the mystery of the Father and the Father's love and to reveal man to man himself and included in that he teaches us the truth about marriage and the truth about our own dignity. And what is the model for the couple? What is the self-giving that the marital couple are called there? Who is it to be modeled on? To be modeled on Jesus. Consequently, the married couple take 
as the source and the foundation of their love and their self-giving, they take the Eucharist. Which is the representation, which is Christ himself. It makes present to us the whole reality of Calvary. Christ giving to himself to us as our food for the journey into eternal life, for he himself is the food. And the Eucharist is the gift to us of Christ's total self-giving on the cross, the gift of the bridegroom to his church, the bride. And that is the model, that type of self-giving, that total self-giving where nothing is held back. It is finished, it is consummated, he said he has given everything. That is the basis, that is the model for the type of self-giving that a married couple are called and that a Catholic married couple in particular should model themselves on all. This is very important. Pope John Paul II's encyclical on the Eucharist. Look at this quotation. Let's read it. I'll read it slowly. The Son of God became man in order to restore all creation in one supreme act of praise to the one who made it from nothing. Truly, this is the mysterium, the mystery of faith, which is accomplished in the Eucharist. The world which came forth from the hand of God, the Creator, now returns to him redeemed in Christ. Christ brings forth the good creation. St. Paul says, ever since the beginning, from the beginning of the world, the whole of creation has been groaning in one act of giving birth, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Jesus gives us the power to live according to to God's plan for us when he created us. Yes, we are weighed down with original sin and the consequences of it. But we have been, more importantly, we've been redeemed by Christ. And the grace of the serpent is the grace to live like Christ. And to live like Christ is to embrace the Father's creation. And to rejoice in the Father's creation. I bless you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for revealing these things to the children, to little ones, and not to the learned and the wise. So the Eucharist of the married couple are called in the Eucharist, in their participation in the Eucharist, to embrace the goodness of God's creation, which means to embrace the goodness and the truth of the sexuality of God created us. Jesus knocks on the door of everybody's heart and everybody's conscience. He invites them in to accept him, <coughs> to learn from him. Here is a married couple, a beautiful image of love and union and community. Here's a person injured in war, we do not know what, how. But every human being, no matter what the condition or the state in life, is a child of God and is deserving of love. Pope John Paul II never stopped finding out that love is the only, is the only thing, right? Every human being is deserving of love. No human being should ever be treated as an object. Aged people. You know, I think one of the joys, one of the great gifts of grace, if we're receptive to it, is that as we get older, you're better able to see the beauty in another person. I'm not talking a beauty of the fact that they are a person. The beauty of their being. And that beauty of their being is a reflection of the beauty of the God who created them. And to be able to see that beauty in another person has nothing got to do with their physical appearance. 
everything got to do with the fact that they are a person, a human being. They're made in the image of God, and you know that they are there because God put them there. And that they are an image and a reflection of God. No matter what condition they're in. And no matter what condition a person is in, from the most battered and bruised and elderly and incapable, Jesus was pretty battered and bruised. And disempowered, and he fell beneath the weight of the cross. He handed himself over into total powerlessness. And back to the question of suffering. No wonder there's a call for euthanasia. We have lost the ability to know how to suffer and to enter into suffering and to accept suffering because increasingly in our culture and society we have lost touch with Christ. He's no longer our model for what it is to be a human being and how to live the fullness truth of our humanity. Here's a family, beautiful sight. Family is called the cradle of life. Wherever you destabilize the family, you will destabilize the whole of civilization, the whole of culture. Where do, where do people most easily come to learn to love, to care for each other, to sacrifice themselves for others? In the family. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we created a whole, imagine, a whole big massive state. One family only. With all the children we say were produced, we say, in um, laboratories. And mum and dad went out to work every day. And they didn't have to worry about looking after the children. The government would look after the children. And we let mum and dad be with the children maybe in the summer holidays. Wouldn't that be a wonderful society? As against, you know, little atomized houses where mum and dad and their own children and mum is there looking after and nurturing the children and we say, dad tries to go out to work and tries to provide for the family and you know, they all gather around and they help. Anyway, you get the image I'm talking about. Our society is very, very much moving in that direction. All the talk you hear, more money for childcare, more money, everything to get the children out of the home and get mum out into the workforce. I'm not saying that women shouldn't go to work. If they want to go to work, they can. But at the same time, our society should not increasingly make it difficult for women to want to stay in the home and nurture their children. There is something beautiful about a family and a family nurturing and rearing its own children. Now, from birth control to death control. In his encyclical on human, human life, Pope John Paul II said, the pro-abortion mentality grows very, very strongly in any situation where the church's teaching on contraception is ignored. Stop. Babies are not to pass this point. But if a few get by, then you must decide to get them out of the way. This, this is an image of contraception, we say, right? And he warned about it. Note that there is a close connection between the contraceptive mentality and the abortion mentality. And here I have an image of contraception. Contraception basically represented the entry by the technocrats into the intimate, sacred, sexual union of the couple. And the contraception could be, stop, says the police man, you must not have that child. It will be bad for the country. That child will pollute the atmosphere. That child, another child in the world will run out of resources. We must put the interests of the state first. All that type of propaganda against life. Then on the other hand, if it's all right to separate the procreative from the unitive, in other words, the, the love from the life part of the marital 
intercourse, then why not separate the bringing it into existence of new life from the marital act itself? In other words, why not create the child in the test tube? And then, of course, what happens there again, that process of life, which God intended to occur within that sacred realm of the love and the communion of the couple, just as God in the beginning created and he continues to exist from the communion, the center of the Trinity, why not increasingly produce human life for experimental purposes in the laboratory? There is a logical continuity here. Here is a baby in utero, 20 weeks old, or 22 weeks. And this is a powerful state. The embryo or fetus is a being. That is to say, it is an integral whole with actual existence. The being is human. It will not articulate itself into some other kind of animal. Any being that is human is a human being. If it is objected that at 5 days or 15 days the embryo does not look like a human being, it must be pointed out that this is precisely what a human being looks like and what each of us look like at 5 or 15 days of development. Very logical, isn't it? Now, anybody doing history... That's the Anybody doing history books, kids in school doing history, in secondary school anyway, you'll often get pictures like that in textbooks. There's no problem with making pictures like that public. And one of the reasons why they make it public, they know the power of it, to tell people something terribly evil happened at one stage in history and it must never happen again. They don't hide it. That happened and it must never happen again. Those who forget the past are doomed to relive it. So the culture of life then, the culture of classing, the culture of life and the culture of death moves, number one, from a rejection of God as creator. It moves into man trying to create his own universe, his own world, in every sense of the world, and ultimately trying to recreate himself. I can wake up in the morning and say that I am no longer male. I am no longer female. I am non-gender. What would you think if I said that? Well, you'd be right to think I'm mad. But nevertheless, increasingly our culture is moving that way. When we put God aside, we lose the understanding of ourselves. So we move into, again, the inability to deal with suffering. So, I go back quickly. From here, the contraceptive, the technological inter um, intervention into the sacred realm of the, of the emergence of, hum, of, of, of new life, new human life, we move to this. Technology again will come in and ease us out of life. We won't have to suffer. We won't have to hang there on the cross with Christ. We won't have to imitate Christ and know that despite whatever suffering, the Father redeems that suffering. And that suffering will be the means of the glorification of our humanity when we enter into the life of the Holy Trinity. The same argument, the anti-life, we will take control of life into our own hands. Baroness Warner, a pillar of the British establishment. Um, she, she influenced so much in the anti-life legislation in, the United, in, the, in Great Britain back in the 1780s, 90s. The Warnock Report on the early experimentation of human embryos. 
open up floodgate. Mm. Here's what she said a few about six weeks ago now. A search that people suffering from dementia have a duty to commit suicide. If you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the National Health Service. Who are the only people with the right to live? National Health Service. Who, whoever the state tells you, whoever the public consensus tells you, and whoever is fit and well and productive, whoever can contribute to GDP, in other words, or who are in a state to be able to meet the demand for pleasure from another. Wow, this is really sinking into the abyss. Would you agree with that? Emperors and kings, presidents, congresses, and parliamentarians. The right to choose. A new utopia. All these materialisms are utopian. Marxism is a utopia. The new man of Mark will break down, will finally rid our, our human history of the alienation between man and the means of production. Crackpot stuff. And then, of course, when it doesn't start working out, you start to push people into the whole, you know, into the, into the system. It's like trying to put wrong pigs in the square holes. And you push them down, you push Nazism, another utopia, the, the thousand year right, uh, the thousand year, the third right, mm-hmm. the thousand year right, and so on. Um, liberal capitalism. We can create the best possible economic conditions and the best possible material state of being by just allowing your market to function according to impersonal forces. And not circumscribe it within a religious and moral framework. Don't get me wrong, there's different types of capitalism. Pope John Paul II there, basically paraphrasing his teaching there, and he condemned one form of capitalism called liberal capitalism. The right to choose. We don't have... We have all of a right to choose. We have a right to choose some things and not other things. I have the right to choose, and I'll have a cup of coffee or tea after this, and I'll really enjoy it. But in doing that, if I... If in order to do so... Um, uh, somebody's only one cup of tea left there and somebody else is going to take it so I'll go up there and stab them in the back so I'll get the cup of tea and they well, I cannot choose that there are certain things that we cannot choose and no governor, no emperor no king, no president even if everybody calls out for I want the head of John the Baptist I want to kill that child in my womb I want to kill that elderly person doesn't matter who they are or what country they're president of, they have no right to do it. As St. Augustine said, unjust law is not law at all. It's chaos, isn't it? It's which? It's chaos. It's chaos. It's, it's whatever. It's injustice. It's murder. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Suffering. The acceptance of suffering. However, very important, and it's a trap we can fall into by the devil, the trap of pride. And the trap of pride works in many, many ways. Yes, the rejection of God. But also, it can work in ways of seeing oneself as the privileged one of God to the exclusion of others. We have all sinned. We are all the recipients of God's mercy and forgiveness. And even the greatest sinner is not beyond the reach of God's mercy. You see the case of Dr. Nathan killed who knows how many babies through abortion. But God, how many? 
75,000. But God reached them through people who remained faithful to the gospel. Our role is not to go out there and condemn others. Jesus said, I, Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. To say we don't condemn the world doesn't mean we don't point out what evil is and call evil by its proper name. And if somebody is committing evil, we can say it. If they're in the public arena, then it needs to be said publicly. But at the same time, we don't pass the judgment. We leave the judgment to God. We remain faithful to the truth. And if somebody is proposing that it be legalized to kill this person or that person or this plastic person, they say, you are wrong. And you are attacking the common good and you are destroying the common good and you are being, you're, you're being an instrument of evil. You can say that without condemning a person. You are, you are dealing with the action. You are not dealing with the interior state of soul of the person. And it is a terrible violation to ever think we can even enter into that realm. The father of the prodigal. We must never forget in all our dealings that Pope John Paul II said in his encyclical on the Father, the Father of mercies. The greatest attribute of God, as far as we're concerned, is his mercy. The gospel is called the gospel of mercy. And Our Lady is the mother of mercy. And that is why an awful important part of our prayer must be the prayer for those whom we oppose. And it mustn't be a superficial type of prayer as if we're just going through the motions. No. That prayer should give rise to, in us to a deep sentiment of love for our enemies. These words in the gospel are not to be wasted. Jesus wasn't talking hyperbole when he said love your enemy. We must pray as much for our enemies, meaning the protagonist of the culture of death, as we do for our own family. Otherwise, we'll never turn it back. It's got to be the gospel undiluted, not the gospel made in our own image and likeness. Thank God, Jesus has, God has planned everything. We have the sacrament of penance. And even the greatest sinner is not beyond the reach of God before death. The good, the good thief, as we call him. There is in Christ. Death is overcome. Death, where is your sting? St. Paul says. For sin abounded. Grace and truth abounded evermore. We've got to be very careful we don't become Manichaeans in the way we try to live or talk about the gospel. That we become preoccupied with the evil in the world. The fundamental message is one of reconciliation. St. Paul says we are ministers of reconciliation. So while it's very, very important to point to the evil in the world and to denounce it, at the same time, Jesus didn't send us forth to primarily preach about the evil of the world. He sent us to teach and bear witness to the fact that he's overcome the evil of the world. Jesus, I trust in you. The divine mercy. And we so much need to, to pray today to call for an outpouring of God's mercy. That, the, that mercy, that the grace will enter into the heart of everyone that they become more receptive to, to recognizing God and embracing and loving as the Lord of life and then living out the consequences of that. And of course, the Eucharist. 
the Eucharist, the sacrament of mercy, the sacrament of love, the sacrament of communion, the cross, the source, the, the source and summit of the Christian life. That's got to be at the, at the, at the that's got to be the heart of our life. We won't overcome the culture of death if we're not Eucharistic people. Truly Eucharistic people. And of course, the mother of the Eucharist, Pope John Paul II calls her in his um, document on the rosary. She is the one that can break open the hardest hearts, including our own. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Eamon Keane. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.